Yarn. Yarn 17, Chernobyl. Before we begin, have a listen to this. This is a recording of sound echoing around the inside of an empty nuclear power plant cooling tower. You'd recognise the massive tulip-shaped concrete structures. Images of cooling towers have become synonymous with nuclear power plants. I thought they looked scary. Now I'm standing inside one. Listening to my footsteps and other people's voices reverberate around the circular walls towering over me. But this cooling tower is empty and unfinished. It's only about 70% of its intended height. Four tiers of scaffolding run around the rim at the top where workers once stood and laid layer upon layer of concrete slabs as if they were assembling a giant 3D puzzle. A block hasn't been laid here in 33 years and won't be ever again. Construction ceased all of a sudden, specifically April 26th, 1986. The day of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. It occurred when the reactor in unit number four exploded. This resulted in the biggest release of deadly radioactive particles the world has ever known. This happened half a mile from where I'm standing. With that in mind, the echoes I'm hearing take on a haunting significance. And so does the sound of my Geiger counter, as it beeps sporadically as I walk around the base of the tower. It's October 2019, and I'm visiting the Chernobyl exclusion zone in the Ukraine. I'll spend two days exploring the zone with a small group of tourists and a guide, and I'll stay overnight inside the exclusion zone, in Chernobyl's only functioning hotel. So come with me as we explore what was once the most dangerous place on Earth. This year, the Exclusion Zone has received a surge in visitors following the popular HBO TV drama series starring Jared Harris. That series took an in-depth look into what exactly happened on the night of the disaster and the immediate aftermath. In this podcast, we will focus much more on the Zone as it is today, its most intriguing sites, and its recently declassified secret origins. This episode is in eight parts. Part one, the zone. The Chernobyl exclusion zone is actually two zones, the 30 kilometer zone and the 10 kilometer zone, with a combined area roughly the size of Luxembourg. The first one you enter is the 30 kilometer zone. It's located two hours drive north of Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, but it also spreads across the Ukraine border into the neighbouring state of Belarus. There's only one entrance open to the public into the 30 kilometre zone, and that's in the Ukraine. Passport checks are performed by Ukrainian military guards before you are allowed to proceed past the barrier. Anyone who enters the zone is issued a small radiation measurement device that is to be worn around your neck until you exit the zone again. Then your total exposure is measured. I'll come back to that later. 
Our guide congratulates us all on our recently acquired qualifications. The moment we crossed the border, we all became research scientists. Officially, the exclusion zone can only be accessed by military personnel, plant workers and scientists. Tour groups get around this rule by calling themselves research trips. Our guide assures us that no one's going to ask to see our science degrees. Like in the old Soviet times, a lot of rules in the Ukraine are open for negotiation. This is our guide. You have, you see the Russian word "beregis," means like be aware, be careful, watch around. But maybe if you see this word too close to you, it's too late. <laughs> He's asked me not to mention his name or that of his company for the following reason. This year, the Ukraine government issued a new law stating that visitors to the zone were no longer allowed to enter inside any unsecured buildings on the site. The structures are, after all, unmaintained and falling down. Roofs are caving in, floorboards are rotting, and trees are bursting through walls. Nature is taking back control. But it's okay, our guide says. I'm not interested in suicide, so we'll be careful. The entrance ban is also a measure to stop looting. As more and more tourists visit the site, little by little, items are being taken away. People don't seem to mind that anything they take out of the zone and place on their mantelpiece might be covered in harmful radioactive particles. Tour guides have been issued with GPS units, so their movements can be tracked. If they are caught going inside any buildings, they could lose their permits. So our guide's solution is to leave his tracker outside. Just a second. And when we're inside, we are to keep our noise levels to a minimum, so we don't attract any patrolling guards. With the 30-kilometre checkpoint cleared, we head to the town of Chernobyl. A long, straight road stretches out before us, empty, except for the odd tour bus or military vehicle passing against us. Dense forest lines either side of the road. But before we get to the town of Chernobyl, now is a good time to explain a little about radiation levels. Part 2. Radiation. Put very simply, radiation is energy. Everything emits radiation. Tiny particles that radiate off objects as they decay. There are three main types of radiation particles. Alpha, beta and gamma particles. Gamma radiation is the most harmful. They are the smallest and fastest moving particles. Unlike beta particles, which can be stopped by heavy elements like lead, gamma particles can penetrate almost anything. They can pass through human flesh and bone and actually break apart our DNA or mutate our cells and cause cancer. The Geiger counter I'm carrying detects levels of gamma radiation. It's measured in something called microsieverts or MSVs. When we started out in the city of Kiev, two hours from the exclusion zone, my meter read 0.15 MSVs. Anything below 0.3 is considered normal. The display lights up as green and short friendly beeps interspersed by long intervals can be heard. As we drive along the road, five, then 10 kilometers deep into the 30 kilometer zone, my meter reads 0.12 lower than what it was in Kiev. So why is this? 
Have you ever looked out an airplane window at night as you come into land in the big city? Street lamps light up the outlines of the roads, car parks and housing estates, leaving other areas in the city in darkness, black. Radiation levels in the zone are a little like this. The road we're travelling down was meticulously washed and parts of it have been resurfaced. It contains very little radioactive particles, but the thick forest on either side of the road contains a lot more radiation. We exit the bus for a moment. Eleven years ago, government take one and a half meter of soil from this area and left this sand here. So now level is even less than eleven years ago. As soon as I approach the tree line, my Geiger counter's friendly interspersed beeps become one angry whine. The digits change from green to red. At the edge of the road, my meter reads 2.20, well above the normal 0.3 MSVs. While the roads in the exclusion zone are perfectly safe, the forest areas are to this day incredibly dangerous to humans. The reason we can enter the exclusion zone at all is because of the incredible work done by the so-called liquidators. In the months and years directly after the disaster, an estimated 700,000 men and women undertook the massive job to stop the radiation from spreading. Their names were never properly documented and their exact numbers are not known. Any deaths or illnesses that occurred as a result of their work were never properly documented either. The liquidators came from all over the Soviet Union, but most of them were from the Ukraine and Belarus. Our tour guide's grandfather was a liquidator, a fact he's very proud of. Our guide shows us his late grandfather's original ID pass, the one he used while working here. It's a prized possession for him. Once the power plant itself was secured and the emission of radioactive particles was stopped, the titanic task of decontaminating the surrounding area began. Helicopters dropped liquid latex all over the site to catch airborne particles and stick them to the ground. Then, the top layer of soil from as many areas of the site as possible was dug up, removed and replaced with new topsoil or sand, trucked in from outside the zone. Over a hundred small villages and settlements were raised and buried. Large swathes of forest were raised and buried. Larger buildings and structures were left standing, but were washed and rewashed. Demolishing multi-storey buildings would have been a lot more work and the falling debris might kick up more particles into the air. And of course, thousands of animals were killed and buried. Everything was buried in the area known as the Red Forest. All the contaminated soil was buried there. All the cold animals were buried there. All the vehicles and machines used in the cleanup were buried there. Along with the inside of unit number four of the power plant, the Red Forest remains one of the most contaminated areas of the zone. So most of the high traffic areas of the zone have been cleaned, but there are still black spots, pockets of highly radioactive areas all around the zone, a stone that wasn't washed, a piece of metal from a discarded vehicle part, slates on rooftops where water hoses couldn't reach, they lie in wait like landmines ready to go off. But as long as the particles are not airborne, they will stay where they are. And as long as you don't get too close, 
for too long, you'll be fine. Any particles that landed on the ground after the explosion that weren't removed by the liquidators have started to sink beneath the soil. Contaminated particles are thought to sink at a rate of one centimetre per year. So if you dig down 30 centimetres, that's where you'll find the original fallout. This is the main reason why the exclusion zone is no longer habitable. No homes can be built here, nothing can be grown here, and water cannot be drunk here. Despite the liquidator's best efforts, some contaminated objects have found their way outside the zone. After the Great Liquidation Project was concluded, a second unofficial and illegal project began, the looting of the exclusion zone. It was almost as large in scale as the liquidation. Anything of value that could be removed was taken from the zone. Radiators, mattresses, floor tiles, cutlery and any metal. Here Our guide explains. But during from 1990 up to 2000, here was a lot of thieves and robbers who tried to take some pieces of color metal. So here you see how it looks like. They take these pieces, make a fire, plastic or everything else was burned, metal metal was left. So they take only metal. What, why they the main reason why I have my own personal Geiger counter with me today is an indirect result of the looting of Chernobyl. In the late 80s, tons of iron was taken from the zone. Security personnel were most likely paid bribes to look the other way, as all the metal was moved through their checkpoints. The iron was resold and ended up being bought by building contractors. Several apartment blocks in Kiev ended up being built with contaminated steel girders. To this day, some Ukrainians viewing apartments to buy or rent will give the place a once-over with their personal Geiger counter, just in case. A work colleague of mine is from the Ukraine, he loaned me his Geiger counter for my trip. Part 3. Chernobyl Town Entering the town of Chernobyl, at first, I'm a little... underwhelmed. The town seems pretty active. People are out walking the streets. It looks well maintained. There are lots of obviously vacant buildings, but there are lots of others clearly still in use. The town of Chernobyl has become the administrative centre of the zone. It contains two shops, a hotel, a church, a fire station and several dormitory buildings. Soldiers and staff stay in the dormitory buildings and rotate in and out of the zone, 15 days on, 15 days off. Over a thousand people bed down in the zone each night. But this doesn't include the current power plant workers. They stay outside the zone, in a new purpose-built town off-limits to tourists. The only restaurant is located in the modest Chernobyl Hotel. Alcohol can be purchased in the shop or restaurant, but only between the hours of 7pm and 9pm. And there is a zone-wide curfew of 11pm each night. I'm travelling with my sister, Debbie. Here she describes her experience when she enters the shop in the town. 20. 1950 style or something, Ireland shop, and that kind of way. I say, I say, can I have water, please? Yeah, I say, what? Yeah. Uh, can I get one to fridge? No. That's it. No. <laughs> that was it. No. The town of Chernobyl is an ancient settlement. It dates back to the 1100s. The main square contains something unique to the rest of the Ukraine. 
It is the only surviving statue of Vladimir Lenin in the country. Statues of Lenin would have been present in most towns in the Soviet Union. But after Ukraine gained its independence in 1991, its people pulled them all down. Except, of course, for this one. All this Soviet iconography remains stuck in time within the zone. Across the road from the statue of Lenin is a small, unassuming building. This was the location for the Chernobyl disaster inquest, where key figures in charge of the plant were put on trial, and testimony was heard from scientists and investigators. They chose to stage the trial in the town of Chernobyl, probably not for its proximity to the disaster site, but for its seclusion and secure location, away from any prying international media or curious crowds. Even though the power plant is generally known by the name Chernobyl, the actual name of the plant is the Vladimir I. Lenin nuclear power plant. Chernobyl is not even the closest town to the plant. It's 15 kilometres away, while the much larger city of Pripyat is only two kilometres from the plant. The city of Pripyat was purpose-built to house plant workers and their families. It was named Pripyat after the river Pripyat that runs next to it. The city was only established in 1970. This is why the power plant is known by the name Chernobyl. The town of Chernobyl, although a lot smaller, was much better known locally for the simple reason that it's been there for over 800 years. Part 4, the 10 kilometers zone. It's time to leave Chernobyl town and enter the inner part of the exclusion zone, the 10 kilometer zone. Back on the deserted road, our way is blocked once again by a second checkpoint. Right now we will move through the border of the zone. I hope soldiers will decide not to make their work again as today in the morning and let us go without any We file out of the bus and our passports are checked again. Friendly stray dogs mingle between us, looking for food and attention. There are stray dogs all over the site. They all look alike, a shaggy crossbreed, particular to the zone. These dogs are the descendants of the original pets left behind after the evacuation, the ones that managed to evade being shot by the liquidators. All dogs in the zone are tagged behind the ear. They congregate near checkpoints and popular tourist sites. These are the best fed dogs in the country because tourists can't resist giving them their leftover lunches our guide says. The soldiers are glad of the dog's company too. They teach them tricks and play with them on slow days. The three dogs that occupy this checkpoint have been dubbed Alpha, Beta and Gamma by the guards. Part 5. The Power Plant. The first evidence of the power plant comes in the form of another forest, a man-made forest of steel and wire. Hundreds of electricity pylons and towers carry black cables through substations and transformers. If viewed from above, it would look like a vast network of train tracks converging into a busy station. Electricity once surged through this warren of cabling and fanned out in all directions, linking towns and cities all around the country. But now the electricity trickles in the opposite direction, providing power to what remains of the plant. We pull over by a lake 
where the whole power plant becomes visible. To the left of the road are the electricity pylons. They lead to the power plant complex directly in front of us. The complex is made up of buildings 4, 3, 2 and 1. Our guide explains. On the roof of the building, this is unit number 1. In the middle, another white pipes. This is unit number 2. To the left side, wall to wall with new sarcophagus with new shelter. This is unit number 3. And under the shelter, under the tomb, under the arch or under the sarcophagus, any of these words you prefer, we have old shelter. Under the old one, we have unit number 4. Disaster happened on 26. Unit 4 is easily identified by its massive domed encasing, the so-called sarcophagus. It was completed in 2016, funded and built by an international consortium of countries. To the right of the complex, a man-made lake with concrete banking follow the road down to where I'm standing. Directly across the lake on my right are the unfinished buildings of Unit 5 and 6. A lonely crane hangs above the roofless structures. Beside them are the skeletal beginnings of Unit 5 and 6's cooling towers. Tower 1 is about 70% complete, but Tower 2 is only about 20% finished. The lake was designed to cool the water coming from Units 1 to 4, before it would be pumped back into the station. The water was heated again by the energy from the reactor, until it turned to steam, where it pushed a massive turbine that generated electricity. The steam then began to cool and turn back into water, where it would flow back once again into the lake. But the lake wasn't big enough to service two additional units. The constant flow of heated water would never cool down enough to repeat the process. So each new unit would require its own cooling tower. A cooling tower adds an extra step to the process. The warm water from the plant, that was previously steam, is pumped into the tower. There's an inner wall inside the tower. Hot water enters the bottom of the inner container and rises up to the top as it cools, eventually spilling over the inner wall. The cooled water then runs into the lake where the process can start again. Excess water vapour is what you see trailing out of the opening at the top of the tower. There were big plans for the future of the Chernobyl site. In addition to the new units 5 and 6, a further 6 reactors were slated to be built, along with their required cooling towers. This of course was all scrapped in the spring of 1986. But the remaining units at the Chernobyl plant kept on producing power. Reactor number two was permanently shut down in 1991 after a fire broke out due to a faulty switch in a turbine. Reactors one and three were eventually closed due to an agreement Ukraine made with the EU in 1995. But they kept on producing power here right up until the year 2000. Taking in the landscape around me, and watching as my group pose for photos with the plant behind them. It's the first time I feel a little weird. How should you look in these photos? Is smiling disrespectful in light of what happened here? Is it inappropriate to be in a photo at all? We move on and enter the power plant complex itself. Empty car parks surround the buildings, but there are signs of life. At shift change, plant workers wait for buses to collect them. 
The buses are the same Soviet models that evacuated all the residents of Pripyat 33 years ago. The scene of workers smoking cigarettes and joking with each other while they board the buses is like viewing a snapshot from history. We pull up about 200 meters away from unit number four. Its great silver arched cover glistens in the sun. You could fit the Statue of Liberty inside the center of the arch with a few meters to spare. My Geiger counter begins to beep. 2.0, 2.3, 3.4 appears on the display in red, but that's nothing compared to what the reading would be under the cover. After this, the old sarcophagus was built, first one and second now, and this one is here. I'm standing on the spot where the first firefighters to respond that night began tackling a blaze like no other they've ever fought. None of them would be alive a month later. Part 6. Welcome to Pripyat. Our next stop is the city of Pripyat, two kilometers away. We cross over the railway bridge, which has become known as the Bridge of Death. The story goes that on the night of the disaster, residents of Pripyat gathered on the bridge to watch the fire at the plant and the strange glow shining up into the sky. All these spectators are said to have died soon after, but our guide remarks that this doesn't make much sense to him. Disaster happened in the middle of the night, in one of those 23 minutes. So I don't think that people decided. If you lived in Pripyat, why would you walk outside the city in the middle of the night? Why not go to the roof of your apartment building? That would be a better view. Standing at the center of the bridge, our guide points over to Unit 4's dome in the distance. It's barely visible above the tree line. If, if here is nothing to see, those days, you see the sizes. The new shelter is 110 meters tall. The previous sarcophagus is 36 meters tall. Unit number 4 was only 44 meters tall. So if here was even two times less trees, it was impossible to see the shelter of the sarcophagus. The, the unit number four. There isn't enough elevation here. He heard the bridge's nickname predates the disaster. And also, <coughs> locals used to call this place Bridge of Death even two years before the explosion. Because here was a big car crash and two people died in this car crash. So locals called this place Bridge of Death even two years before the disaster happened. But That's where the bridge got its name. We near our third checkpoint at the entrance into Pripyat. It's the most lax. A guard leans back in his chair and just waves us on. There's been a checkpoint in this spot since before the disaster. There's been a checkpoint into this city since its establishment. Pripyat was a private community of over 40,000 inhabitants. If you wanted to visit friends or family who lived here, you needed to apply for a permit. It's only when you enter Pripyat that you realize the scale and speed at which nature can resume dominance in the absence of human intervention. In the 33 years since its desertion, Pripyat streets, parks and squares we'll have become completely overgrown with trees. Yeah. All of these trees, poplars, starts to grow by themselves, self-growing trees, and they start to grow five years after the explosion. Birds should take these seeds, uh, mm -hmm. air, should, wind should take these seeds and throw it somewhere. The level of forestation surprises me. 
It's how I'd expect to find a lost ancient Inca city, not a place so recently inhabited. Our guide says we're lucky to be here in the autumn. At the height of summer, the vegetation is so thick, it's hard to make out the buildings, so it's easy to get lost. We make a stop at Pripyat's police station. A police officer posted to Pripyat would have had a relatively uneventful time of it until April 1986. The jail was used to dry out the occasional drunk. The fire station next door was also an easy posting for its firefighters until the night of the disaster. We move on to the swimming pool complex, which actually remained in use well after the disaster. And then one year later, in 1987, swimming pool starts to work again. For scientists, engineers and doctors who work here known the nuclear problem and keeps working up to 1997 during 10 years. So after the end of working day, these people can take a rest here, can practice in swimming here. And swimming pool, Lazuna is abandoned from 1997. So, sounds like 22 years uh, abandoned only. Uh, you saw on the stairs, you, you saw this rubber. Yes. So they put this rubber after the explosion to make it easy to wash uh, the, the stairs. Then we move on to a school. Uh, in this school, they study deeply mathematics and German language. So over there, you will uh, see some of books on German language. So strong uh, GDR uh, communism, German communism. Pripyat was a model city for the Soviet Union. The reason there are so many pictures of it was because they were taken officially for propaganda purposes. It was built using the best methods and materials. The architecture and interior designs far surpassed anything you'd find in the average Soviet town or city at the time. The elementary school we walk into is a beautiful design. It's made up of two interconnected four-storey buildings with a courtyard at the centre of each. It features a double-height gym where the upper-level hallway gives passers-by a view down into the space. On each floor, a wide hallway runs around the entire level, lined with an unbroken ribbon of windows that looks out into the courtyard. As we enter the cafeteria, our guide points out a heap of gas masks on the floor. The gas mask couldn't anyhow protect you from radiation. All particles will move through without any problems. This gas mask will um, save you only from toxic air, not more. Actually, uh, this gas masks here during the last 11 years. Some authorities take them from the school, uh, from the high floors, and just left it here for good pictures. That's all. Tourists this staged this scene. This is something we begin to see in more of the rooms and buildings we visit. Gas masks keep popping up, even though they were never used by the people of Pripyat. Clocks are suspiciously stopped at the time of the disaster, even though the explosion would have had no effect on clocks and children's dolls are placed in cliché tableaus on beds next to, yes, more gas masks. All in the name of a good photo. We move on to the Pripyat Hospital. The hospital's basement is one of the most contaminated parts of the zone. The clothing, worn by the first response firefighters, was left here in a pile, and here they lie to this day. A few floors below where I'm standing. 
Some of the inner corridors are so dark, I have to turn on my phone's flashlight. I see a collection of flashlights coming towards us, another group of tourists. It's a very odd feeling, seeing someone else in the zone. You think, what are they doing here? Our two groups file past each other in silence. It's like we'd rather not acknowledge each other's presence. The charade is broken for a moment. You feel cheap and exploitative. We're all treating this place like a theme park. Once the other group are out of sight and earshot, we can go back to pretending we're the only ones here. The insatiable appetite of thrill-seekers and zone obsessives to find undiscovered areas or to perform daredevil acts atop well-known structures and post them on YouTube has become a worrying trend. Our guide calls them illegals or stalkers. He must be a Tarkovsky about, fan. You asked me a question about people who go to, on the top of this construction. So, sometimes illegals do this. During the last 13 years, 11 people died here falling down. The last of them, two years ago, a gentleman from Belarusia fell from the middle and died. Because the sizes of this construction... Illegals enter through the surrounding forest. Most head to Pripyat and hide out in one of the hundred or so apartment blocks. From there, they have free reign of the zone. The fine for getting caught is less than the price of a ticket, although I imagine you might have to fork out a little more if you don't want your camera destroyed by a guard. The sun is starting to set and a fog drifts in as we pass through the main square of the city. A yellow sky provides a backdrop to the infamous Ferris wheel, the centrepiece of the amusement park, scheduled to open for Pripyat's May Day celebrations four days after the disaster. But all the inhabitants of Pripyat were gone by then. They were issued an evacuation notice 36 hours after the explosion. Our bus drives out of Pripyat along the same route they would have taken. This is the evacuation notice that was broadcast. Attention, attention, attention. Residents of Pripyat, the city council informs you that due to an accident at the Chernobyl power station, radioactive conditions in the vicinity of Pripyat are deteriorating. The Communist Party, its officials and the armed forces are taking necessary steps to combat this. Nevertheless, with the view to keep people as safe and healthy as possible, we need to temporarily evacuate the citizens in the nearest towns of Kiev region. It is highly advisable to take your documents, some vital personal belongings and a certain amount of food with you. You are only leaving your residences temporarily. Please make sure you have turned off the lights, electrical equipment and shut the windows. Please keep calm during this short-term evacuation. We cross the bridge of death and descend to the train tracks passing underneath. The area's train station was just a short walk along the tracks. It's become a train graveyard. Here lies another radiation hotspot. Our guide attaches his Geiger counter to a selfie stick and angles his device under a rusting excavation machine's caterpillar track. Under the caterpillar, you can get close and make some photos. What's it say? Now it's 504. Oh, wow. 514. 522. 
504. 544. We multiply on 6 and we have 3264 times higher than Kiev level of radiation after 33 years after the disaster. Yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> I don't and think impressive is the area, word for it. And to this area people are allowed to go. To it's well past nightfall when we arrive at the Chernobyl Hotel, back in the 30 kilometer zone. The dinner menu is pretty simple. The dishes are called chicken or vegetarian. I settle in with others from our group and uh, conversation veers away from Chernobyl for a couple of hours. I retire to bed. It's quiet except for the odd howling from the zone dogs outside in the car park. Part 7. The beginning. The next morning, we venture back into the 10-kilometre zone on a journey to the most important area on the site. We'll go back to the very beginning and uncover the reason for the power plant's existence in the first place. We're on the way to a former secret Soviet military base called Chernobyl II. Like Pripyat, Chernobyl II was a custom-built private city. But unlike Pripyat, it never appeared on any maps, and visitors were strictly forbidden. There were no photographs taken of this city. We turn off the main road at an unmarked junction and travel uphill along a small B road. There's thick forest on either side of us. The road is surfaced using slabs of poured concrete. After 30 years, the gaps between the slabs have widened and the concrete is cracked. It's a rough ride. We slow down for a moment as we pass a sheltered bus stop. Its back wall is painted with a colourful mural with a cartoon bear, Misha, the Moscow 1980 Olympic mascot. The Olympics of 1980 and 1984 were charged with Cold War political symbolism. They showed a world split in two. The 1980 games were held in the second world where communism ruled. The US boycotted the games, along with 65 other countries. The reason they cited was the Soviet-Afghan war. Then, the 1984 games were held in Los Angeles, the first world, where capitalism was king. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the opening ceremonies of the games of the 23rd Olympia at Los Angeles. The Soviets boycotted that year. The image of the friendly cartoon bear is a poignant relic of the Cold War. We are about to discover how the Cold War is the reason we're here. It's the reason the plant was built, and thus the reason why this place is now a no-go zone. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The bus stop, the friendly-looking bus stop, is a fake. It was built with the intention of never being used. It was a front, erected to make this otherwise curious road to nowhere appear a little more normal. The citizens of Pripyat and the surrounding villages were told that this road led to a children's summer camp, but no one from the area had ever sent their kids there. No one had even heard of anyone's kids going there, but our guide explains it like this. But in uh, Soviet times, we have a proverb. It sounds like, the less you know, better you sleep. 
means like uh, don't put your nose in your business. If you know less, you will have less problems. In so many times, if you know too much, if you ask too much, if you talk too much, it was a good reason to send you to the jail. So people, of course... Our guide actually heard a story firsthand from a former resident of Pripyat, who was curious about the place. He was very curious. So he went seven kilometers from Pripyat to this place. Half a kilometer from the military base, he saw two soldiers who asked him, you don't know how to read in Russian language? Your staff were shooting without warning, as you remember. He said, like, I get lost, I was looking for mushrooms. The answer was next. He has no mushrooms and never will be mushrooms. For you it's better to return back because probably you will never return back. So he understand everything and he returned back. Never try again. So it was absolutely, absolutely secret place. Right now we will go... Very we finally reach the top of the hill. The trees part and we get our first look at Duga 1, the secret structure at the center of this base. Duga 1 is a colossal radio antenna array, a wall of iron. It stretches out across the landscape like a giant's tennis net. Its intricate lattice structure is over 150 meters tall at its highest point. To put that into perspective, the Statue of Liberty stands 93 meters tall, and the London Eye is 135 meters tall. This antenna is taller than either of them. Duga 1 spans about 770 meters in length. That's roughly seven soccer fields. It would take you about eight minutes to walk from one end of the structure to the other. Here's our guide again. The weight of this construction is 70,000 tons of iron. The weight of new shelter is 36,000 tons of iron. Two weights of new shelter. To dismantle this construction, government of Ukraine will waste more money than will receive because quality is amazing. And when the government of Soviet Union made this uh, three radar antenna in Soviet Union, early warning radar defense network, it was a little crisis in Soviet Union with iron because imagine yourself this size, this incredible size. So how do you keep a structure that size secret? You put it in the middle of a forest. The residents in the small villages couldn't see up higher than the trees around them. Pripyat was different, of course. Residents living above the seventh floor of any of the apartment blocks could see the radio antenna clearly, especially as its shiny iron construction glistened in the sun. But they were told this was just an FM radio antenna, so they could hear their favorite Soviet radio shows better. Well, the less you know, the sounder you sleep. So what was it really for? It was designed to be a ballistic missile early detection system. Duga 1 was part of a radar array. Duga 2 and 3 are several kilometers away in opposite directions. They were transmitters, while Duga 1 was a receiver. The Duga project was an over-the-horizon radar system. The curvature of the Earth means that most radar is limited to the distance of the horizon. But Duga fires radio waves up at an angle into the air. The signal bounces off the Earth's surrounding ionosphere and back down again in the direction of North America. The assumption being that if the US launched a nuclear missile at the Soviet Union, they would take the shortest route possible over the Arctic Circle. Intercontinental missiles leave Earth's atmosphere on their way up and break through the atmosphere again on their way down. Duga 1, the receiver, would detect a disturbance in the signal being bounced back to it at the points where the atmosphere had been breached by the incoming missiles. 
The name Duga is a shortened version of the Russian word. The word Raduga. Raduga means rainbow. So if we cut the word Raduga into parts, the second will be Duga. So rainbow goes over the horizon. Also, as this short radio waves goes over. The system to work, an extremely powerful radio signal, had to be constantly fired into the ionosphere. It could be heard over air traffic control radio, VHF emergency frequencies, and AM and FM radio stations. Here's what it sounded like. Guide says. The government of Great Britain understands that signal goes from the middle of Soviet Union. They ask Soviet government about this. Why you are breaking international law? None of governments are allowed to use these short frequency radio waves. Why you are breaking international law? Signal goes from the middle of your country. The answer of Soviet government was as always. We don't know what you're talking about. Here we have a summer camp. Go and check. Something. The irritating sound was dubbed the Russian helicopter by the British, while the Americans called it the Russian woodpecker. No one knew what it was for. Some guessed it was some kind of missile defence system. Others thought it was a tool for communist mind control. The Soviets didn't care what people thought it was. As long as it struck fear into the hearts of capitalists, it was fine by them. Its presence was also a constant reminder to Americans of apparent Soviet technical dominance. The Soviets picked the region of Chernobyl for the Duga system because of its remoteness and its line of sight to North America. But they had a bit of a problem. A radar station that big would require a massive amount of energy. It needed its own power plant. This is the reason the Chernobyl power plant was originally proposed and built. The radar station was the beginning of it all. Without the radar station, there would be no power plant. There would be no Pripyat. There would be no disaster and there would be no exclusion zone. That makes this the most important place in the zone. Our guide explains this it like this. Fifteen years ago, Nikita... Mikhail Gorbachev, last leader of Soviet Union, by the way, he's still alive, as I told you yesterday, 88 years old, he said the thing that collapse of Soviet Union starts from explosion on nuclear power plant. So maybe, we can say, maybe radar antenna was the beginning of collapse of Soviet Union. Be sure we are not losing time on this place. This is a unique place. The Chernobyl power plant had four working reactors. Reactor 1 provided power directly to the Duga array. That was more than a quarter of the plant's total output. From here, the numbers start to get ridiculous. The Chernobyl power plant was built at a cost of three billion US dollars, an astronomical amount of money at the time. The Duga array was estimated to cost seven billion US dollars. The two projects together cost about half of what the US spent on the Apollo moon program. That's the price the Soviets were willing to pay for a 30-minute warning of an imminent nuclear attack. The tragedy was, no matter how hard Soviet scientists and engineers tried, the Duga early warning system never worked. They were never able to narrow the signal enough to get a reliable warning response. Commercial air traffic, weather balloons, even large flocks of migrating birds all bounced back to Duga as an alarm. The system was useless. But there was no need to let the world know this, so the Soviets kept broadcasting the signal. 
They kept the base operational and they kept drawing massive amounts of electricity from the power plant. You could say the Cold War was like a massive game of poker between the US and the Soviets, making Duga the Soviets' biggest bluff of the game. Duga was finally turned off shortly after the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. The woodpecker signal stopped broadcasting. The Soviets finally had an excuse to scrap the programme without anyone knowing it never worked. The military base Chernobyl 1 was evacuated just 10 hours after the explosion. The city of Pripyat, which lies only 2 kilometres from the reactor, wasn't evacuated until 36 hours after the explosion and the hundred or so villages dotted around the zone weren't fully evacuated until months after the explosion. We Our guide sums this up with the phrase All of people were equal in the Soviet Union and uh, some of them were more equal than another one. So people who lived in villages... He's a George Orwell fan too, I take it. As I stand gazing up at this immense but ultimately pointless endeavour of paranoia, the most tragic of ironies hits me. In the Soviet's attempt to protect its people from a nuclear explosion, by building this station, their actions actually led to the very thing they feared most on April 26, 1986, when reactor number four exploded. Part eight, the future. As we leave the zone, I can't help thinking about its future. What will the zone be like in another 33 years? As nature continues its fight to eradicate any remnants of human existence here, the buildings in Pripyat will eventually fall down. If tourists and stalkers are continued to be allowed free reign across the site, and looting, graffiti and staging continues, there won't be much left of the place either. Decisions will have to be made about the future of the exclusion zone, whether that's preserving it in some way, or increasing security, or just letting nature erase it. Half of the price of a ticket to the zone goes to the government. These funds, supposedly, are spent on the protection of the zone. But locals don't exactly trust that the zone's future is in safe hands. I clear the final checkpoint out of the Chernobyl exclusion zone. I hand in my radiation meter that's been hanging around my neck for the last 48 hours. I'm a little nervous as I wait for the results. Our guide reads out the amounts we've each absorbed. Mine is a total of 6.6 MSVs over two days. That's roughly the equivalent of what you receive on an airplane during a two and a half hour flight. This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com, written and narrated by John Roach Music score by Drembot Very special thanks to my guide in the zone If you'd like his name and the name of his tour group send me an email or a Twitter direct message Details are in the episode description